I feel the need to do an episode, a very special episode, where I discuss what happens in the D.C. streets. I have an article, but I'm only going to do one talking about D.C. Because there are things about D.C. that a lot of people are not aware of. So here we go. Washington, D.C. Ironically, the capital of the United States was also the murder capital of the United States as Washington, D.C. was filled with a number of crews throughout the city, mostly during the 1980s, 1990s, to go with the infamous gangsters and kingpins that ran the former Chocolate City's crime underworld. Rayful Edmond, with his Los Angeles and Colombian connections, Rayful became one of the most lucrative kingpins on the East Coast till his downfall led to him becoming a cooperating witness. Michael Frey, one of the most respected to ever hit the D.C. streets as his word meant a lot to D.C.'s urban communities. Truly an old school legend as his stance gave him longevity until his power would come to an end through a homicide. I want to be honest about something. Um, I hate the terms old school legend, kingpins, queenpins, street veterans, street legends. Um, I just hate all criminal vernacular because it's all about the glorification of global devastation. And, um, it just gives people a warped sense of royalty, a warped sense of success, a warped sense of being fully human, and a warped sense of respect, too. And so let me speak about more of who Michael Frey is. I did so in the past, but his real name was Michael Anthony Salters, but he, on the streets he was called Frey, Michael Frey Salters. Okay, I've talked about this guy before, but let's do it again. Wayne Perry, also known as Silk, Wayne Silk Perry. The argument can be made that Wayne Perry was the East Coast's most notorious killer and most definitely Washington, D.C.'s most feared. Now, I hate the the debate on who does the most evil, the most pure evil. I think it's a senseless and ridiculous debate. I think it's a nonsensical and foolish argument. Um, and I just think that it is a complete waste of time, energy, or an attention. Um, and it says, outside of Wayne Perry, there was Shorty Pop. Um, 
He was also called Lil Pop. His real name was Shelton Watkins. Much younger than Perry, Pop terrorized many in the streets as he came up in Southeast Washington, D.C. Then you had another person. Um, his name is Big Boy. While authorities said he was the head of an organization that was responsible for millions of dollars of heroin during the 1970s, prosecutors were unable to convict him of any of their drug conspiracy charges. I've always found that to be mind-blowing. Like, how? How do they... How did they not have any data or evidence... Could, I mean, if they had technology we had back then, they may have, could have gotten that guy. Mm. Gray. Throughout the 1990s, Gray and a small group of people were notorious, but somewhat under the radar, as authorities said that Gray had a record number of homicide charges. As previously stated, there was a number of crews throughout the city from uptown to the southeast who posted on the corners or within the numerous apartment complexes and housing projects and created a very lucrative market, at least from the 1980s to the beginning of the 2000s. Below is just an example of how the streets were conducted amongst the crews, as there were probably close to 100 crews in the city at one point. Now, none of this should be glorified, okay? Who's the most feared, the most revered? Even crime gives people a warped sense of reverence. It warp crime or crime warps all positive character attributes. It crime warps all positivity. Crime gives people a warped sense of all things positive. So it says below is just an example of how the streets were conducted amongst the crews as there was probably close to 100 crews in the city at one point. Then it says 21st in Vietnam. One of DC's most deadliest communities that is around the Carver and Langston Terrace housing complexes. With, li- with likes of the Wallace and Moore families, this area built its reputation becoming known as Little Vietnam in an already notorious section with the help of the nearby M Street crew a violent crew known for PCP sales. DC, for me, these things have to be talked about because a lot of people in DC know these names and these people but don't want to say anything out of fear. And I understand the fear. I had it, I was forced to have it for years. But a lot of people would probably say you're the Washington, D.C. version of Curtis James Jackson III, also known as the rapper 50 Cent. You name dropping all the names of those with a history of committing crimes in D.C., just like 50 Cent dropped the ghetto Quran that name drops the criminal, the criminals in South Jamaica, Queens, New York City, New York. Um, first of all, here's my response to such sickening ignorance. I'm calling these names out not to glorify, 
not to boast, not to brag, but these things should not be quiet. People have to know that these things that happen in D.C. happen all over the world. Crime is of the ruination of families and communities everywhere. So I'm sharing these stories to let people know, to anybody that's listening, I could help save lives through a podcast. Mm. I Anybody listening could be more aware that, oh, wow, I need to be more sensitive to my community. I need to build um, a relationship with the good police officers. And I need to report what I know to the right law enforcement. If that means anonymous, do it. That means put your name out there and it's known that you said something, do it. You know, I say all these things to let people know crime is not worth praising. It's not worth gloating. It's not worth singing about in terms of singing its praises. No, crime should always be denounced and renounced. All crime should be denounced and renounced. All right. Then it says K Street. Probably the most infamous community of the Southwest and the once home of Wayne Perry was at one point most of Southwest's street activity was in the Greenleaf Gardens complex. His federal indictments have indicated that throughout the 1990s, murders and a daily profit of thousands of dollars from illicit sales plagued the area. First in Kennedy, along one of Uptown's most popular streets, Kennedy Street was a section of the strip around First Street. Known for the Mowat brothers and others, this set of KDY, short for Kennedy, was often in conflict with other nearby blocks off Kennedy Street. There are numerous of other crews in areas like Trinidad and R Street who both went up against Rayful Edmond, or in the city's housing projects where there was constant friction like Con and Terrace versus Berry Farms, Simple City versus Eastgate, Clay Terrace versus Lincoln Heights, or Huntward versus 58th which would contribute to much of the violence in the streets. And here's the evil about it all. I remember my dad telling me that there was capers, um, and then you had M Street, And then there was um, public housing projects Southwest DC would sometimes feud with each other. James Creek Housing Authority and the Greenleaf Garden Apartments. (laughs) It was just still is complete bullshit to me that you have public housing complexes fighting with each other. Like, it's just stupid. Like, James Creek Projects and Greenleaf Garden Projects. I don't like you. You don't like me. I'm like, we're all poor. Why are we creating more animosity towards each other? 
why why are we creating more animosity? The government is already creating animosity against us. Why are we adding more animosity that was already created by the government that wasn't started by us, but we intend on, you know, being oppressive like the government is toward us? That makes no sense at all. So, I want to talk about something else um, that a lot of people know in D.C. but don't want to talk about it. Uh, 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 I'm going to talk about it. Has to. Here we go. It says 14th Street now and then. Boarded up buildings used to be a feature of Washington life. For much of the 1990s, I lived a block off the 14th Street corridor. It was not the avenue of conspicuous consumption that it is today. Instead, it was known for prostitutes. 14th Street was the city's red light district. While most of the CD strip joints and peep shows were gone by the 90s, the sex workers remained. He called them hookers, I say sex workers. And he said it was known for prostitutes. I say sex workers. Because that's what sex workers want to be called. So I called what they want to be called, being respectful. Coming home by cab, I'd see women in tiny skirts and high heels strolling, trolling for customers next to shuttered buildings. An experience that helped to inspire my novel, don't mess up my block. I just want to say, horophobia is revolting to me. I'm pro ho. I'm pro sex work. I'm a. I am sex positive. Let's keep going. The Logan Circle area had been like this since the riots of 1968. I couldn't imagine ever changing. Also, it wasn't called Logan Circle in a neighborhood name that was synonymous with slum. My apartment at 15th and Swan was in a place called DuPont East, according to the real estate listing. There were no big glass storefronts on 14th Street back then. Instead, you had riot architecture. The places that were open were built to survive a disturbance. One of my favorite dive bars, Stetson's, embodied this style. It had a brick front with one small window that was made of smash-proof glass cinder blocks. Hmm. I'm telling you about someone who actually lived in this area. I mean... I think sex work in D.C. should be legalized. I think there should be um, decriminalized sex work in D.C. I think sex work should be decriminalized and legalized everywhere. And I think D.C. should have a legalized and decriminalized red light district. That's just my view. And um, I like how he painted... um, architectural poetry about um, his life and um, you know DC did have a history of riots you know the 1968 riots when Martin Luther King was murdered assassinated then he says 
On 14th Street, buildings were either boarded up or covered with big metal shutters that were pulled down after dark. There were a few exceptions to this, of course, like the Black Cat and the ubiquitous auto repair shops that lined the strip. They were probably chop shops. I actually talked to my dad today. He said um, that there were syringes and needles of drugs that were found scattered around 14th Street, especially the Vermont Avenue area as well. And um, it's sad that I see so many abandoned buildings in DC. I'm like, why not turn them into community centers, art centers? Uh, Why not turn them into affordable housing? Why not uh, turn them into um, domestic violence shelters and rape shelters. That's what I'm thinking. And then then, um, it has more. There were a few exceptions to this, of course, like the Black Cat and the ubiquitous auto repair shops that line the strip. They're probably chop shops. Things change slowly and then all at once. Theaters and clubs moved in, opened up the old auto showrooms. For a while, there were even used bookstores and indie coffee shops in the neighborhood. I think there needs to be more bookstores, more coffee shops, um, more aftercare centers, more daycare centers, for real. This is brief period of late 90s through early 2000s was my favorite 14th Street era. Still a bit cheap and seedy and just dangerous enough to scare off the suburbanites. Hmm. So, um, I find that to be amazing that they don't turn the seedy areas into, hmm. Why not turn them into psychology firms, recovery centers, rehabilitation centers for more of what people need? And why is it that I'm only going to make D.C. better because affluent white folks are moving in? But without these affluent white folks, we're going to allow black indigenous people of color, including Hispanic community, um suffer from the social injustices is deterioration meaning economic deterioration um and neighborhood deterioration then it says you could have an unbothered drink at bar bar piler go see a pop-up art shop a go see a pop-up art show in a former break shop and still afford to live in the neighborhood. Mm. Wow. I don't understand why these greedy developers can charge people whatever they want, especially these landlords. Like, what? You can't, you shouldn't be charging people whatever you want. There should be a cap limit. It should be I think Congress needs to think about, okay, you can't charge people over $2,000 a month. $1,000 or a little bit more, 
hmm, we need to re-examine that. That's still too much money. Then it says, I represent this transition in my short story, Apartment 101, depicting three decades in the life of an apartment. It's largely based upon my experience of living at 15th and Swan. Washington, D.C. exploded with money and people during the Obama years. Barack Hussein Obama Jr., the former president, 44th one. In this, in the author's opinion, he said, we had a good mayor in Adrian Fenty who ushered in reforms, got rid of the worst of the corruption, delivered new amenities like bike lanes and new libraries. You know, those are positive things. Meanwhile, the grudgy 14th Street corridor had come to love went upscale. It says... The boards were taken off and the old buildings were gutted and open to the street. Barcelona's Spanish-themed wine bar was a revelation. A grimy outdoor gym was turned a sparkling stage with a huge glass window, allowing people to peer into the boozy life of Washington's professional set. And to my surprise, there was even sidewalk dining on the street where I once dodged ranting crazy people and prostitutes. Wow, that's pretty harsh. I'll just say where I once dodged ranting people who are in need of empathy and compassion in light of mental illness not taking it lightly and sex workers that's a kinder way to say it in a homage mockery of the past a bar called red light district open on the street wow I'm, i'm amazed that you could actually name uh any establishment that type of name because they're so big on a lot of people in D.C. are so big on, we don't want to offend well-to-do people, but apparently well-to-do people like the name, so it's been capped. Wow. The few people who remembered 14th Street from the old days thought this was insensitive. Hmm, I can understand that. Because it's like, wait a minute. You're making it upscale, but social injustice is still literally around the corner, down the street. And you allowed these things to happen on 14th Street. This is what they're saying to the government. You allowed these things to happen during that time. But at the same time, you're only doing this because affluent people, you want to meet their demands, but we're not members, we're not members of the 1%. We've been telling y'all that 14th Street is quite controversial and quite problematic for us, but you ignored us for years. And you didn't make it, you didn't make this neighborhood this pretty until until a few years ago. Mm. The city was now bougie. And in, in their minds, they're like, wait, you're upscale, but y'all still thumbed your nose down at people who are not of opulence. Then he said, the city was now bougie and I couldn't imagine ever changing. In 2020, this unhappy year, the pandemic changed everything. In mid-March, everything closed from fear of the coronavirus. Mayor Bowser ordered the city into lockdown. I remember that. I remember that vividly. Then, Then the author says, I used to be annoyed the drunk brunch goers, the double park Ubers, the place like bar piler that had been discovered by the masses but it felt really creepy to be on the street without people especially at night wow yeah people like their mimosas 
and their fried chicken with waffles. Basically, it's like Roscoe's chicken and waffles with mimosas, champagne, and beer, and wine. And the parking, when you have people who are very... um, into their alcohol and affluent people like, ooh, I could drive my car. I'm not going to. I'll just use Uber. Then you got people like, I don't know how to drive. These parking meters, they make millions off us every day. And then these bad drivers, the middle fingers, the cuss out matches, the how'd you get your license? But again, you're still a bad driver. And you know, parking in D.C. to take up all the spots and we can't overstay our time when we try to park uh, because they'll tow our vehicles. These things happen in D.C., I know for certain. I know that feeling. I remember one time I tried to go to Kramer's. It was a restaurant back in D.C. on Connecticut Avenue. It was a bookstore, but it had a restaurant in the back. I used to go every week at one point. This was before the pandemic closed. That's going all the time. And, whoo! I remember, I remember Ubering there. It was closed. And I was walking to the train. Barely any people. This was about the week of March 15th. So I, I remember that time. Following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, demonstrations came to D.C. which devolved into riots, window smashing and looting. While the police were busy with Black Lives Matter protesting near the White House, organized groups drove around the city robbing liquor and drug stores. See, I never understood. Depression, economic depression... stimulates criminality in so many people. It's like, we are not encouraging positive news to be placed in the media. Because if that were true, you would have less crime and more people wanting to do what's right. And so a lot of times people will blame Black Lives Matter for the mayhem that was already there. You can't blame a movement for what people sweep under the rug. If you make the news negative every day, including the weekends, then how can you hypocritically get mad at people and do negative things? Well, they shouldn't be doing that stuff. Stop making the news so negative all the time. If you put more positivity out there, more positive things will be done. If you keep putting daily negativity there, you're going to have daily negativity in the streets. And the disrespect of buildings, the disrespect of architecture, the disrespect of constructions, the disrespect of construction workers is what I'm seeing too. And I noticed that mental illness is still a stigma. It's still something that 
not enough people are sensitive to. It's like a lot of people still assume that therapy, counseling, psychiatry are negative. No, they are beautiful because they help a person to manage well their mental illnesses. I went out one morning to see jagged holes in the storefronts of 14th Street. Rocks had been thrown through windows of restaurants. Later that day, boards went up along the length of the 14th Street corridor. All the temples of consumerism were now hidden by ugly plywood. Then the boarded-up storefronts blossomed with art painted by local muralists. An improvement as the city limps back to life. Now, restaurants and bars have started to go out of business like G. Bellina, where I once enjoy happy hour pizza, while people will do takeout and sit outside if you want to go inside to a bar. The advantage of the city that people has become has become a liability in this COVID era. Wow, we're not even protecting our buildings. Wow, we are causing business owners, small businesses to be traumatized by the crime. And we're unprotecting business families. We're unprotecting customers. And um, the buildings are shoddy, S-H-O-D-D-Y. And um, again, I just look at DC a lot of times, especially I remember being a few blocks from the White House. There's a tunnel that all Washingtonians know where it takes you from DC to Maryland to Virginia and um, within that tunnel it's down the street from the US Department of Labor it's around the corner from there I used to see naked homeless people half naked homeless people and fully clothed homeless people I saw them I saw them smoke cigarettes, um, smoke marijuana. I could tell by the way they were smoking. I'm like, okay, that's weed. Oh, okay, that's tobacco. I saw them um, just hanging around, mumbling, creating fake arguments. Um, and no one would be there when they would argue. It's like arguing by looking at the sky but no one is there it's just that person arguing um having an imaginary argument and i'm not making fun of mental illness but i've seen this so many times in dc i saw them have unkempt body hair everywhere like the werewolf gene when they're homeless well suffering from homelessness is a kind of way to put it you could tell there's no hygiene, no personal grooming, and there's the smell would turn your stomach in a nauseating way, make you want to gag and throw up and puke and vomit. Just being real. And I hated it. I'm like, this is a few blocks from the Capitol. 
just like Hanover Place. So, a few blocks from the Capitol, you have a ups. You have a large-scale drug trade. Are you serious? But you have politicians a few blocks away. Congress a few blocks away. But Rayful is nearby. Even Cornell Jones, a former D.C. drug boss, he was making money nearby. And it took you that long to stop him? Y'all weren't constantly monitoring these neighborhoods? Not out of racism, but out of caring for people. Mm. And, um... I noticed, like... You have more DC people who have, um... Who have ties to crime. So. It should be talked about. And, uh, and this is what I do. I talk about what's important. I think a newspaper will be best. It says, The Teflon Suspect by Paul Duggan, March 27, 1994. In an unrelenting effort to put Sean Lantei branch in prison, district authorities have filed reams of court documents in the last six years describing him as a murderous drug gang enforcer with a reputation so frightening that few people would dare testify against him. DC has a lot of healing that it needs to do. At the mere mention of his name, police officers and prosecutors roll their eyes and sigh in exasperation. That little piece of work, said Assistant U.S. Attorney June M. Jeffries, who has tried mildly, who has tried mightily to convict Branch of murder. People have been afraid of him for a long, long time. Added Prosecutor Deborah Long Doyle. An executive assistant to U.S. Attorney Eric H. Holder Jr. became Attorney General under um, former President Obama. In the crime world, even prosecutors feel like, why am I being paid if I can't convict the people supposed to convict? And then you have the don't dry snitch, don't snitch, don't rat, snitches get stitches. Rats get death traps and dry snitches or punk bitches. I used to hear all of that when I was in organized crime. And then it says, he's a dangerous, dangerous kid, said a DC homicide detective. The neighborhood terrorist said another, a punk said a third. I'm not dissing Teflon Sean. I'm not, that's his street, that was his street name. I'm not dissing the man. I'm just saying more of this stuff 
We need more criminologists, more psychologists, more social workers, more lawyers, more attorneys to have a trained professional coordination coalition to go at these city mayhems and state mayhems that happen all over our global society. Then it said, yet after countless hours of police legwork and after a torturous series of prosecutions, sometimes featuring unusually zealous tactics, authorities in Washington have managed to convict Branch of nothing since his first adult arrest in 1988. They have charged him in 10 cases with crimes ranging from first-degree murder to illegal handgun possession. And eight of the cases have ended in Branch's favor. The other two, both homicide cases, are unresolved. In every case, Branch, now 23, has managed he is innocent and he has never been found guilty of intimidating a government witness. Earlier this month, in fact, he was acquitted of a charge that he tried to kill a man who had, impl- who had implicated him in a slang. But victims and witnesses familiar with the reality of life on the streets consistently have declined to testify against him, fearing his alleged reputation for violence. Jeffries and other prosecutors said, the problem is we're not protecting our neighborhoods, we're not protecting the homes, we're not protecting the apartments, we're not protecting the projects, we're not protecting the children, we're not protecting the adults, we're not protecting the elderly. And they need to constantly update and improve and invent better and better and better technology so more of the rascals, as a lot of uh, legal officials would call them, can actually make the street safer by simply putting behind bars, even though I understand mass incarceration is a problem. It's like... We want to keep people off the streets, but we don't want greed to happen because of cell blocks. Hmm, I understand that. And it says the recurring problem has so hampered the U.S. Attorney's Office that last year, after a key witness to a homicide implicated Branch in a police interview but refused to appear before a jury, prosecutors took the rare step of putting the witness Arlen J. Budo on trial for criminal contempt of court. He'd rather go to jail for life than testify, said a lawyer for Budo, who was convicted and is to be sentenced next month. The reluctance of witnesses to testify, authorities said, illustrates what former U.S. Attorney J.B. Stevens called the culture of fear in many neighborhoods, including branches in Northeast Washington, where threats and violence against witnesses have become commonplace since the late 1980s, a byproduct of the city's feverish murder rate. A Washington Post computer aid analysis of all 1,286 slangs in the district in 1988, 1989, 1990 the first three years of the search and killings found that murder in the nation's capital often goes unpunished. Detectives in the U.S. Attorney's Office, overwhelmed by the body count, managed to win murder or manslaughter convictions in only about one of every four of the homicide uh, cases. Wow, this article is really lengthy. Alright. But I'll do it. It says, um, Whether scared, apathetic, or bound by the street ethos against snitching, 
Unhelpful witnesses are among the toughest obstacles hindering D.C. police and prosecutors as they try to build solid cases. Authorities said that is part of the reason that winning a conviction of Branch is so important to them. Every time Sean beats a case, one prosecutor said, the word goes right out on the street. People say, well, see, there's another one that they couldn't make. Why should I come forward? Branch said any reputation he has for violence is undeserved. I described myself as a mellow average young black man trying to make it in this world. He said recently from the D.C. jail where he was awaiting a murder trial that began last week in D.C. Superior Court. In all of his cases, he has pleaded not guilty. I think it's unfair for them, to, for them to be keeping him locked up all the time like this. It's harassing because all these charges are just the lies of other people, said Branch's girlfriend, Kimberly Davis. So now you're hearing multiple perspectives on one person. Because criminals are duplicitous. How they are with the hood, how they are with the suburbs, the inner city, the country, where the Amish people are too. Everywhere they go, different people are going to have different things to say about them. He's an easy target, said his mother, Yvonne Shore, a 38-year-old warehouse worker. If they have an open case, they say, let's put it on branch, but Sean is a nice guy, good guy, you know. So a lot of times people speak on what they think they know about a person based on, well, I've never seen him say or do these things that some people in the streets are saying. But if if, if he's not nice or not good to them, it's not enough for him to be only nice and good to you. You need to care about how they treat other people, not just y'all. Then it says, although physically unimposing, he is five feet four inches and weighs 135 pounds. Branch is described in court documents as a feared enforcer and contract killer on the streets around Montana Terrace, a public housing complex near his home in the Brooklyn neighborhood. Almost every crime which he has been implicated occurred within walking distance of the complex. Besides one being indicted on a charge of obstructing justice, he has been charged in four homicides and accused in three other cases of shooting at a total of five people, two of whom were wounded. His only conviction for carrying a 45 caliber handgun illegally came in Maryland, where he served three months in jail under the name Sean Belzer, according to federal court records in Baltimore. You notice a slight criminal name change? Teflon Sean quit more than a few people who know him. He's certainly not an angel, but he's also not nearly the monster to make him out to be, said Bernard S. Grimm, Branch's lawyer in recent months. The government is just caught up in its own failures. The more they go after Branch, the more unsuccessful they are, the more determined they are to get him. Branch, who was not interviewed in person, but responded to a list of questions after consulting with Grimm, said that the witnesses they use against me are drug dealers or drug users. People will say anything to get themselves out of trouble. They lie or whatever. Then when it's time to come to court, they don't want to come to court and lie. He grew up in the 200 block of Douglas Street Northeast, a working class neighborhood less than half a mile from the crumbling asphalt landscape of Montana Terrace, a jumble of graffiti marred three and four story blockhouse apartment buildings, some of them burnt and boarded up. See what I mean? Crime and buildings looking raggedy. DC needs to fix that shit. They need to fix their fucking potholes. People are saying, you motherfuckers are always keeping us from 
driving on the streets in peace. Our car rocks up and down and God damn it, it's fucked up and I motherfucking agree. Then it says, Branch gravitated to the complex as a youth and found trouble. Yvonne Shorter said her only son, now an unmarried father of two, never did make it to high school. He was locked up so much as a juvenile, in quotations. As an adult awaiting court hearings on various charges in the district, he has lived behind bars for 37 of the last 65 months, including the past year and a half, shuttling, shuttling in a corrections department bus cage from the jail to Superior Court and back nearly 100 times. Police and prosecutors like it that way. In fact, twice in recent months and what authorities acknowledge is an unusual step, they purposely timed the filing of new murder charges against Branch to coincide with the demise of existing cases to ensure that you stay in jail. When the law enforcement is fucking tired of your ass, what they will do is make sure we're going to shut you down by shutting your shit down. If that means loop, legal loopholes, if that means we bend our rules, that's what the hell we do. That's what the fuck we do. Damn it. That's how they feel. UFOLO 12F1988, the Cook case. Now, as to the court system, Branch officially reached manhood on September 30th, 1988, two months before his 18th birthday, where a district homicide detective obtained an arrest warrant charging him as an adult with second-degree murder while armed. Yeah, if you're mightily close to 18, they're like, all right, we're going to give you that grown man shit. I say grown man because, you know, that's his gender pronouns. He's a man. We're going to do that grown man shit on you. Anything you do now, especially if you black man close to 18, whoo, okay, we're going to do some super grown man shit. Sprinkling with... We're going to do some super racist grown man shit. That did happen. Says the victim, Patrick Cook, 25, had been stabbed the previous June in the Montana Test Recreation Center in what investigators believe was a drug-related slang. Detective Herman Johnston wrote in his warrant application that Branch had been identified as the assailant by a witness who said he had known Sean Branch for two or three years. Besides the man quoted in Johnston's affidavit, Detectives talked with other possible witnesses who then believed had information about the stabbing. But in a pattern that became familiar in Branch's cases and is common in the cases of many accused killers, even people initially were helpful grew increasingly cooperative in the months after Branch's arrest, prosecutor said. I remember they were scared to death of Sean Branch, said prosecutor Long Doyle. With Branch jailed and denied bond, Long Doyle presented evidence to a grand jury which indicted Branch in a first-degree murder charge in April 1989, nearly a year after the slaying. First-degree murder is punishable up to 30 years to life in prison. It took a long time because it was difficult first to find the witnesses, then to get them in here. Long Doyle recalled, adding that a police sergeant basically had to go and drag them in. And even once we got them down here, they were not very forthcoming with us. Branch's trial in the Cook homicide also was slow, while authorities searched fruitlessly for absent witnesses. They eventually ended with the jury deadlock, and days later, in early, in early January 1990, Branch was freed on $25,000 bond to wait a new trial. He was arrested twice more in the next seven months, beginning with a handgun charge of which he eventually was acquitted. The second charge in early, in early July 1990 involved a shooting the previous month in the 3100 block of Rhode Island Avenue Northeast. The victim, Vincent Knight, then 18, wounded in the buttocks, told police that he recognized Branch as one of the gunmen and that he has known Branch for years from the neighborhood, according to a detective's warrant application. 
But a few days later, Knight recanted the positive identification. All of a sudden, he couldn't be sure it was Sean Branch. Rick called a detective involved in the case. He said he just wanted to drop the whole murder any. He said he just wanted to drop the whole matter anyway. The U.S. Attorney's Office on July 18, 1990 had little choice but to withdraw the charge of an assault with a dangerous weapon, a crime punishable up to 10 years in prison. The dismissal came just five days before the scheduled start of Branch's second Superior Court trial on the Cook stabbing, but that prosecution also went belly up at the last minute. It says, um, wow, wow. It's just, it's very very long and um I had to give y'all some of that it's just wow I put the rest of the article in there but whoo, I had to stop right there because I was like, okay, I've reached my max with this article because some of these articles are mostly taxing. Like, yeah, I'm going to just stop. Then this one, you know. It could go from the wink, wink, red light district to an actual red light district, rolling back progress all the way to the 1990s. Well, I don't think so. I think if it's an actual red light district, as long as it's legalized and decriminalized, it should be fine. So I disagree with the author on that. This is another article. Um, so what happens next? With people afraid of crowds and a move toward telework, do cities have a future? What will become a 14th Street? Then he admits that I've been consistently wrong about things since 2016. The world surprised me with new terrible developments since the dark timeline. So I'm done with those articles. They're just very taxing on the mind. So, um... So let me share a little bit more about Shorty Pop. It says, Shorty Pop was killed in 1992, was shot in the face. Um... So this murder happened. Um, The Manhattan execution of notorious cocaine kingpin Alpa Martinez brought a long sought peace to a woman whose fiance was gunned down as orders 32 years ago. Karma has everyone's address at Michelle Talaferio, now 56, and the way you operate in life eventually you're gonna have to face your demons. Karma will find you out on these streets. I'm feeling a little more comfortable with myself. Matthew Blake was just 24 and the father of an infant daughter when a bloodthirsty teen gunman known as Lil Pop, who was also known as Shorty Pop, Sheldon Watkins, 
gunned him down in Washington, D.C. on December 6, 1989. Shorty Pop was at least 17 when he did that. So you do have team killers in the world. People don't. In D.C., um, there are figures such as Ears the Christ, Alpo, Wayne Perry, Big Head Gary, Andre, Tank Johnson, Ray Flatman, um, as y'all know. And uh, Ears the Christ um, was also known as Spock Ears when he was living a life of crime. And, um, there's more. Wayne would extort anyone who he felt had money. Dealers wouldn't drive their best cars, wear their best gear around them because it would give them away that they were getting to the money. Ray Flatman would try to break them off some work just so he couldn't be touched. Everyone in Wayne's camp had their position and they had to play it well. There was going to be issues. Despite everyone being afraid of him, he was good to his team. Good is not good when it comes to crime. If he came up on a couple kilos, he would break it down with all his guys. Main thing that mattered to Wayne was heart. Yeah, being heartless. Um, The dude got upset. Wow. I already read some of these things. Okay. I'll read this. Wayne was very smart. He used his sharp mind to put people to test who thought they belonged with him. If a dude was soft or fake tough, he would take whatever that man had. He only respected real men. Yeah, the toxic masculine ones. Didn't matter how much money you had, women, cars, any of that. He took it. Sick. He also used his ability to make people laugh as a way to test the waters with them, too. One scenario was when he was joking around with a guy he didn't like. Just see his reaction. He kept telling the guy, he's a bitch. You should be taking that dick. All kinds of shit. Yeah, all kinds of bullshit, I'll say. The dude got upset, kept telling Wayne to stop like a little girl. Wayne told him that he put a hole in the back of his head. They were in the car when this happened. When they reached to the mall, Wayne slapped him and told him to strip naked, which he did out of fear. Another scenario is when he told his managers got out of Lorton with no money to go inside of a known dealer's crib and tell the dealer to give him the money or else. The dealer was so scared of hearing the name Silk, he gave it all up in five minutes, no problem. Wayne didn't care who you were. If the price was right, you weren't a part of a circle. You had to go no ifs, ands, or buts. The murder game is big business. Uh, people are not toys, so I don't like to call it a game. And that's insulting to legitimate business, by the way. Once that bounty is put on your head, it's no turning back. Most of Wayne's friends were completely scared of him. You're afraid of you, you. You're afraid of someone that you are said to be of a bond of mutual affection. Wow. Uh, that's mutual lack of affection, apparently. 
Wayne played by his own rules. He made them and broke them as much as he pleased. No one's going to do anything to him. Overnight, he became the most feared man in Washington, D.C. When Wayne started to get paid for the bodies he put in the dirt, people around the city had no idea it was him that was committing these crimes. His physique wasn't intimidating, so you wouldn't have thought it was him doing it. People thought it was a man from Detroit. Wow. Wow. Oh, I read the rest about him already. It was just something that was like, damn. Washington, D.C. had a pretty deep reputation for the various drug lords and hitmen like Wayne, Michael Frey, and FBI informant Ray Follett, just to name a few. Michael Frey was popular like Rayful. I hate the term. I hate the word using. I hate using the word popular when it comes to crime. I, I, I do. I'm just being honest. But it sure as hell gets worse. Lil Pop was a stick-up kid in D.C. He was around 15 years old when he met Alpo. Him and a group of friends started a group called Junkyard Band when they were signed to Def Dent signed to Def Jam, producing their hit song, Sardines. The Junkyard Band is Washington, D.C.-based go-go band found in the early 1980s by children playing on improvised instruments. They're best known for their song, Sardines in the Word. So, it says, in 1992, original member and drummer Heavy One was gunned down the same Barry Farms project where the band perfected their bucket band style. And then it says, with Go-Go music getting a popularity and the band gaining local notoriety, the band began performing, began booking performances at schools, recreation centers, fundraisers, and government agencies. The band was often seen performing for tourists on the streets of Washington, D.C. This popularity led to appearances in the 1984 Cavalier Men's Store television advertisement, 1983 film, DC Cab 1988 film Tougher Than Leather with Run DMC. It was this interaction with DMC's Def DJ Run that led to an eventual recording contract older brother Russell Simpson's Def Jam recordings. Um, wow. The band was formed in 1980 by children ranging in age from 18 to 13 living in the Berry Farms Government Housing Project, Washington, D.C., they were inspired to play after witnessing the performance of local go-go bands in their neighborhood. Not having resources to purchase traditional instruments, the children instead scored their neighborhood in search of objects that could emulate the sound of real instruments, hubcaps, plastic buckets, crates, cans, and discarded pots and pans. These types of go-go bands became known as bucket bands. After a few informal performances in Barry Farms, the group was dubbed a junkyard band by locals. This is perhaps a reference to the animated television program Fat Album, the Cosby Kids, whose band, the Junkyard Gang, also performed on improvised instruments. So the members were Bugs, Gene Pratt, Casey, Moe Shorter, Winko, Daniel Baker, Demi Doc, T Bob, Trey Dog, Bruce Bailey, Dave Ellis, also in the 32, Plucky, Mike Strong, Jasper, Blue Eyed, Daryl, 
uh, Petey, Black, Pooh, Jason Lane. The past members were Heavy One, Shorty Pop, and Lil Derek. Um, wow. I think there was a guy named Jawbreaker. Let me make sure that um, I mention him correctly. Um, hmm. I'll get to that in a second. It says Shelton, Shorty Pop, Watkins, Berry Farms, Southeast Washington, D.C. Shorty Pop was a fierce stick-up kid and hitman in D.C. and had been labeled the top gunman in the city 1980-1989. Shorty Pop is actually one that introduced Alper, Alpo Martinez to Wayne Perry. Pop was also good friends with notorious D.C. street figures such as Sean Teflon, Sean Branch, and Ears to Christ. Shorty Pop was actually the lead singer of the Go-Go group Junkyard Band, which had signed a deal with Def Jam Records in the late 1980s when Shorty Pop was only 15 years of age. It's been said that Pop was going to lay his gun game down and had been behind quite a few notorious DC slangs during that area. During that era, many whom are said to have many many whom are said to have be very loved in a sense making retaliation almost inevitable. It's also been said that Rayful Edmonds would supply Pop with drugs and money in order to keep him from going after him. Shorty Pop was actually gunman by the killing of Domitio Montana Benson of Brooklyn, who had been in D.C. He'd killed Benson at the behest of Alpo for a female whom Benson knew from school, and Alpo believed he was trying to get with his girl, typical Alpo. Shorty Pop was gunned down in a skating rink in 1992. Winston says gunman shot Shorty Pop in his face from close range, repeatedly until his face was completely gone. Um, at the time of his death, Shorty Pop had been on bail for a homicide charge and also had multiple other murder charges pending. Shorty Pop's legacy in quotations continues living in the hometown of Southeast D.C. and Barry Farms. Uh, he, he, one person said he was not killed at a skating rink. He, was ki- he killed someone at a skating rink. He was killed at a club called Classics. Wow. Then it says Wayne Perry first killed Vincent Vincent, right? So now when people tell multiple stories, I've heard Wayne Perry was the one. Now I'm hearing Shorty Pop was the one. <sighs> Crime can be confusing. I know. I absolutely understand. But either way, all three got killed. And I think... Um, even um, Shorty Pop, who killed Blake, he Shorty Pop got killed, and um, Alpo, who played a role in Blake getting killed, Alpo gets killed. So all the killers got killed when it came to Blake. Um, I 
Again, none of this should be glorified. I'll get to the jawbreak thing in a second, but let's mention Baltimore since it's, you know, a few hours from DC. Let's just go there. And by the way, I remember when I was in that um, part of D- uh, DC 14th Street, it was still uh, uh, a wink-wink red light district. That was one of the red light districts I remember frequenting when I was a child. I saw, I think I actually saw street prostitution there the most. I was I was in those brothels the most when I was a child. Um, So let's um let's talk about um hold on just a second. There's a scrolling. Thank you for being patient with me. Okay, Baltimore. From the west side to the east side, the city of Baltimore had a number of legends that once ran the streets. Many of them would later become fictional characters on the famous television show The Wire to go along with some of the once notorious housing projects that were the center of many operations. Watching The Wire gives an example of the streets of Baltimore from the 1970s to the early 1990s, but only in a modern-day perspective. The use of heroin during the 1970s transformed into the use crack cocaine in the 1980s and 1990s, and once again, the users turning back to heroin as of the 2000s. Each era was different. The 1970s was the more chain of command, and only a chosen, an elder, a chosen few were involved, were involved in the 1990s, the rise of violence. People standing on the corner, many were involved. While there were times when Jamaicans and people from New York profited in the streets of Baltimore, the main Baltimore players were with the likes of the old school legends of Peanut King Little Melvin, Melvin Williams, followed by 1980s with T. Stanfield M. Bates in Barksdale Body, B-O-D-I-E, then the 1990s with Rudy A. Jones, T.L. Canty, and the later the likes of the G. Smith, Mr. Big, Rice Brothers, K. Peoples all allegedly made millions of dollars during their day. Um, while every city has kingpins and people who control their trade, every city also has notorious neighborhoods that have gained reputations in the city for the wrong reasons. Housing projects, the old Lexington Terrace and Murphy Homes on the city's west side or East Baltimore's Lafayette Courts and Flag House, all turned down and all torn down in the 1990s, became legendary communities before their demolishing with plenty of memories, good and bad, for the former residents and occupants. The reason why I mentioned the Baltimore because when I was a child, I frequent, I, I was with a drug crew in DC and um, I knew the names of these type of people because in Baltimore they used to speak about all these Baltimore crime figures. So I knew of them by what the locals told me. And um, I made, um, Sometimes we go to Baltimore to hustle dope. And um, I remember with Baltimore, like in D.C., I was frequenting the red light district parts of Baltimore, D.C. at five with the criminals. They took me. They were these were grown men and grown women taking me to 
red light districts in Baltimore and D.C., taking me to the brothels of D.C. and Baltimore and making me participate in brothel activities in D.C. as well as Baltimore. Some of the brothel activities was involved me being raped by the adults and some of the brothel activities as well as participating in brothel activities were about me hustling dope to the adults within these um, seedy parts of D.C. and Baltimore that were basically an illegal sex industry, pretty much. And um, I just wanted to add these things so y'all can get a better understanding of what I went through, what I exposed to. I hate the terms players and legends and trade on when it comes to the world of drugs and just crime in general. And um, I can't watch The Wire because what I saw in The Wire a little bit, I couldn't, I never watched the full episode of The Wire. I don't know if I ever can because what the wire is the g-rated version of what i saw in baltimore when i was five it was way more prostitution than the movies let on way more cursing than the movies let on way more drug using and drug dealing drug trafficking than the movies let on way more murders and shootings and stabbings and muggings and pickpocket panhandlings than what the movies let on okay So, I'm just giving y'all more of the facts of how I was made to grow up. I remember being in the seedy, tough, rough neighborhoods of Baltimore and D.C. I spent most of the... Don't get me wrong, I was in all quadrants of D.C. Northwest, Northeast, Northwest, Northeast, Southwest, Southeast. And when it came to Baltimore... I remember being on the west side and the east side, and those were rough neighborhoods. So I tended to spend most of my, and don't get me wrong, I was in the nice parts of Baltimore, you know, the upscale parts, the middle class parts, and the downtown Baltimore, just like I was, I spent some time in the upscale parts of downtown parts and the middle class parts of DC. But when I was a child, from what I remember, I know what happened to me was I spent most of my time on the west side and east side of Baltimore. I spent most of my time in the rough and tough, seedy neighborhoods of Baltimore. I spent most of my time in D.C.'s rough and tough, seedy neighborhoods as well. So The Wire is my childhood, just like the movie American Gangster that Denzel Washington, the actor, stars and starred in in 2007. Uh, that's why what happened to Michael K. Williams, I, 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 I don't know the full story and I don't even want to because the wire sensitivity popped in my head and I associate it with the wire. I'm like, I, I don't even want to know. I'm too upset. Um... But there's more. So, Trinidad DC legend Jawbreaker couldn't stand Alpo. He tried to kid 
Nap Alpo and shot and nearly killed him. Um, and then it says, Jawbreaker couldn't stand Alpo, shot him up, nearly murdered him. Alpo barely survived. Alpo would go on and end DC's reign. After being indicted and threatened with the death penalty, many wish Jawbreaker finished the job in DC. Wow. Wow. None of this is worth glorifying, by the way. None of this is worth glorifying, by the way, at all. Um, I remember I used to go to Baltimore once a week. Um, One crew took me once a month, while another crew in Baltimore, these two crews were actually cool with each other. Not all drug crews are beefing with each other. Some actually work together. Some are like, okay, we, you know, these two crews were tight. You know, they were friends. They weren't the, t- they weren't backstabbing type friends when it came to each other, but they're like, okay, we cool with each other. You, you do your thing, we do our thing. But sometimes the crews would work together and they w- work together because of me. They're like, we both like Antonio. So they shared me as a part of the crew. I remember um, one crew said, all right, we're going to Baltimore once a month. I put that in my book, my Amazon book, the volume one one. While another crew said, all right, we're going to take Antonio once a week because one crew is making so much money in D.C. that they felt like, oh, we'll just go to Baltimore once a month and make so much money while the other crew wasn't making as much money. So they went to Baltimore every week and they took me. And I remember, um, you know, being in Baltimore and I went, I would go every Friday with them. I remember going to Baltimore every Friday with them. One crew, I remember going, the other crew went once a month. It was usually every, every Wednesday. It was not every, it wasn't every Wednesday with the one crew. It was, they would pick a Wednesday for the six months I was with that crew to go hustle. While I was with the other crew every Friday to sell drugs. And, um... I remember um, Baltimore and D.C. Um, it was not uh, um, it was just I'm getting sad just thinking about the flashbacks. I remember being in Baltimore every week and um I was the guy known as AO I was also the guy known as the notorious ARM and being in Baltimore and DC um I was often this is how I felt um I think the dictionary can help me best because I'm struggling to speak because I'm so hurt. Um, But when I was in Baltimore and D.C., 
especially Baltimore, felt terror, fear, fear and trembling, fearfulness, fright, alarm, panic, dread, and trepidation because I was an entirely different drug trade culture in my mind. Like, oh man, is it going to be like DC? And it was pretty much the same. I, there were slight differences, like with Baltimore, I remember. Um, it was just a bigger DC. That was it. It was just more people, a bigger DC. And with Baltimore, I really had to be more conscientious of surviving the shoot shows in DC because DC wasn't as big. So in Baltimore, I had to survive more. And I was the cool cat guy in Baltimore every Friday. I went every Friday for six months. So that's how I was able to do a lot of the stuff that you see in the volume one Amazon book of mine. I only talked about one crew, but I was in another crew where I went every Friday. And I remember you're probably wondering, so how'd you get homework done? And how'd you get your school assignments and good grades? After the school bus would drop me off at my mother's apartment where my mom's criminal brother lived. I remember um, I would get my homework done correctly and that's when I would head out and walk around and that's when the crews were nearby and they would come pick me up. I remember most of the time they would come get me around four, and by five we're in Baltimore. I remember by six, um, you know, I would stay for like an hour in Baltimore, usually every Friday, like an hour. Sometimes in Baltimore, you know, like DC, not a lot of people wanted drugs, and a lot of people did. So there were times I spent more time in the nightlife of Baltimore. You know, like when I was a child in um, Baltimore, yes, I spent time in all drinking establishments that you can think of. And in Baltimore, it depends on, it depended on if the, if the load was light, but we made enough money to the satisfaction of drug crews, they took me to pubs and bars and nightclubs and parties and live music and concerts and cabarets and theater and cinemas and shows and strip clubs and brothels. And I lived a party life. I was partying and dancing with adults. It was, there's no word for that. So sometimes I spent more time doing that, but there are times where I spent less time doing that if a lot of people wanted drugs. So I had to spend more time drug dealing. Or let's say they're like, you know, let's um let's make even more money because you know, let's just let's just make more money for the hell of it. They would take me to um you know, numbers runner, they would make me the numbers runner of the crew, where I remember going to liquor stores, um, I remember going to, like, casinos with them, and, um, playing a lottery, and I would make money, 
they let me keep a lot of money and the rest went to them. So I remember that. Usually Baltimore was about the nightlife, the numbers running, and the drug dealing. I remember in Baltimore, they had me do those things. And plus in Baltimore, because I was the cool cat, people, I hung out with people in their homes and I hung out with people. It could be sporting games. It could be, you know, attending them, playing them. It could be, you know, going to the movies, going to the park, going to downtown, just all the upscale downtown. They took me there in Baltimore. But I remember being in D.C. and just like Baltimore, everything I said about D.C. Everything I said about Baltimore applies to D.C. You know, not a lot of customers. Okay, you do more of the nightlife. A lot of customers, less of the nightlife, more drug dealing. Or if we felt like making you, you know, you having us make more money. All right, you gonna run numbers. Usually, I did all three. Monday through Friday. Especially Friday, I was mostly doing drug dealing. But as the week would end, they're like, all right, we're gonna celebrate this week. All right, Antonio, you're gonna party and dance with us. You're gonna go to these seedy uh, sex joints with us, sex industry joints with us. They didn't say sex industry, they just said sex joints, but it's really sex industry we're talking about. All right, ain't gonna run numbers for us. So I remember that. And, um,. I was frequenting DC pubs, DC bars, DC nightclubs, DC parties, DC live music, DC concerts, DC cabarets, DC theaters, DC cinemas, DC movies, DC parks, DC shows. Yeah, these are things I did back in that time. And I remember um, it was, it just, makes me feel horrified and terrified and um i remember being in you know dc brothels dc strip clubs too just like the baltimore strip clubs and baltimore brothels as well and um i was raped i was raped in those places and um i also had to hustle dope in those places and I also had to run numbers in those places, too, because they all liked the lottery. And in those places, I was the child prostitute. I was a victim of child trafficking. I was sex trafficking, human trafficking as a child. So adults made me a sex slave, and... um, I was a part of child sex tourism, all those type of things within these DC, Baltimore brothels and uh, strip clubs. That's what I remember. And uh, now y'all got the full story of organized crime because I was like, you know, I thought I told it yesterday, but I was like, no, there's more. Because the more I heal, the more the flashbacks come back. You know how that goes. And, um,. There was a DC drug figure, I did a DC guy named Curtis Kurtbone Chambers. He was on DJ Vlad talking about the horrors of the DC drug world in the late 80s, early 90s with crack cocaine. And um, I'm just giving y'all a full story. Like, I remember reading about a guy named 
uh, Taco Montana, who was a drug figure in uh, D.C. And he released his book the same year I released mine. Ain't that something we both, you know, products of D.C. drug selling world and trafficking world. But um, let me tell you his name. Um, I want to read something to y'all before I do that. Um, one story says people in the two neighborhoods attribute the violence to a conflict between two or more loosely knit gangs who run in the area roughly bordered by Quincy Street on the north, New York Avenue on the south, 17th Street on the east, and 9th Street on the west. The gang members are recognizable because they move around in groups, residents said. Some of the gang members are involved in the drug trade and some are armed, residents said. Uh, I think it's a turf battle, said D.C. Council Member Harry S. Harry Thompson, senior D, um, Democrat for Ward 5. It's a war between the gangs for control of the entire neighborhood. Activists involved in orange hat patrols in Brooklyn said the violence had been concentrated at 12th and Hamlin Streets where young men stand at curbside and sell crack cocaine. Um, even residents of Brentwood, which includes the graffiti Mark Montana Terrace Public Housing Development, and two troubled apartment complexes say the violence is escalating. Wow, there's something going on in this community that's never been, that's never gone on before, said Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner, Commission Leader Joyce Saucier, whose district includes parts of Brooklyn. We had drugs, but we never had those kinds of gunshots. And it says, um, the carnage has put a few, has put a new face on parts of Brooklyn, one of fear. Has left people that live for years in their neat row houses, stately two-story brick houses, wondering why their once peaceful neighborhood had become home to so much trouble. Has left community activists searching for ways to turn it around. Wow. Trees in the neighborhoods have holes, H-O-L-E-S, and concrete sidewalks are nicked. Then it says, there have been times where it has said when bullets have missed their intended marks. A window in a building at 12th and Hamlin that once housed Stancil and Stancil bail bonds bears a bullet hole. So does the picture window in Virginia Ham's living room just down 12th Street. We still don't know who did it, Ham said this week. At the time of the shooting, several of her grandchildren who congregated at her home on Friday nights were on the front porch. The people who were wounded are still recovering. Then it says... Goodwin says his customers rushed to get their hair cut by dark so they could return to the safety of their homes. People used to sit on the porch at night, but they don't do that anymore, he said. People used to walk at night, but nobody comes out too much now after dark. And Montana Terrace violence is not as new. It has for years been a violent place, but lately, the resident said it seems to be getting worse. Wow. Like several people interviewed at Montana Terrace, a woman who had lived there for 20 years declined to give her name. She considered to speak only inside the confines of a tiny apartment where two deadbolts hold out the harm. They killed that boy. They're killing everybody. And the pe- police never find out who did it because the people who know are scared to talk. Everybody is scared except the folks doing the killing. I'm going to say, ooh, that's, 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 wow. There's a lot more crime over here than there used to be. You see it in the drug activity and the police activity, said Fred Goodwin, who has, who, had, who has once 
who has owned a barbershop on 12th Street near Hamlin since 1957. They've been shooting over here now in the daytime. That never used to happen. Eight people lived in units at the north end of the Brett Brentwood Village Apartments told a reporter they had seen a bloodied man running for his life in the afternoon of July 23rd. They whispered when they told how they watched from their stoops as the young man collapsed right in front of the stop sign at Bryan Street, Brentwood Road. He had been shot five times. Mm. And then it says, um, several people in the troubled area said police aren't doing enough to stop the shooting. The D.C. police have got to be more creative than sending their police cars whistling through the night on 9-11 calls, said Ed Gilbride, a member of the Brooklyn Metro Orange Coalition and Orange Hat Patrol Group. Mm. This was in 1992. Mm. The Carnage has put a new face upon Bro- Brooklyn. One of fear. Okay, I read that, but still, just wow. And then it says. Um, this is the book about this guy. It says, here we go. The Ambassador of Chocolate City, Michael Frey Salters. That's horrible. Just horrible. Then it says, Daryl Andrews, also known as Taco Montana, is a retired street legend from Washington, D.C. His autobiography is straight from the man, the legend, the trendsetter himself. And his own words about his upbringing rise to fame and is coming full circle. This story illustrates the lives of many young black men coming of age in the inner city in poverty and the desperation to rise above that poverty by any means necessary. Taka Montana ran one of the toughest street crews in Northeast D.C. in the midst of the highest level of crime, violence, and complete anarchy sweeping our nation's capital. Taco tells a story from his view of what really happened, how he was able to evade prison and walk away from the criminal underworld, underworld completely. This is more than a story of a local drug dealer. This is a story of a man who mastered the underworld, but changed his life for the better and gave back to the community rather than glorifying genocide. I'm so proud of Daryl Andrews for what he has done in his life because I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you this. Um, that crime that that crime crime is a sickness crime is an illness crime is a disease crime is a disorder crime is an ailment crime is an affliction crime is a virus crime is a bug Crime is an indisposition. Crime is an infection. Crime is a malady. Crime is an infirmity that needs a remedy. Crime means ill health and illness. Ugh. Crime makes me feel queasiness and nausea. That's what I feel in my heart. But wow. Told my entire story. And, um, 
know. So. There's definitely more. Milk quasi is the Christ tank Lotoni and Rab in 1988. Mm. Those were the names of those guys who were doing dirt, crime dirt. I just wanted to say that, but um, I'll share more. Um, about my life tomorrow for sure. Peace. Peace out. I stay the fuck out. That shit that makes no motherfucking goddamn sense.